Hi, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we unpack the career and life stories of our guests. And at the end, I'll add some extra thoughts around the purpose themes raised in our conversation. My guest today is Tony Lay, whose most recent role was 10 years as the General Manager of Prison Industries in Victoria. And he's been recognised for his work in helping to reintegrate prisoners back into work and society. So welcome to The Purpose Edge, Tony. Thank you, Phil. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And it's strange. I think at the moment we're living in an age where society more broadly is starting to rethink uh, uh, people and their well-being and their worth. And you've been at the forefront of that. So we'll we'll get to the role you played at um, Prison Industries shortly. But first, I want to find out how the backstory connects to the current story. So tell me about your, your childhood. Where did it all start and, and your upbringing? Yeah, okay. I suppose um, a fairly standard sort of childhood. Uh, grew up on the Mornington Peninsula down out of Melbourne, so a lovely place. But um, like many others, um, you know, a, a, a sort of harder edge to that in terms of what mum had to do to, to bring us up uh, basically as a single mother. So putting us through school, doing all that sort of extra stuff, uh, more or less on her own. Um so I suppose, yeah, that uh, that certainly uh, introduced me to some concepts and ideas earlier than I otherwise would have. But you know, um, I suppose uh, paying her back for that is a is a theme, and and I suppose results in things like determination to get things done. So were you having to, uh, I guess, do I don't know? Were you how many children were there in your family? Uh, myself and a brother initially, and then uh, two stepbrothers came along later on. Um, you've got uh, the makings of a, a backline there in the local footy team or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that was about right too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I've heard you say you needed to be quite self self motivated and driven in that environment. So talk to that. Yeah, well, I think uh, that, that sort of uh, well, if you could have this uh, self motivation or responsibility sort of uh, um, uh, presented itself pretty early. So. Um, and I suppose, yeah, it sort of kicked in. I wasn't a great scholar or student, but it certainly kicked in sort of halfway through high school was the realisation of uh, if I'm uh, to do anything to achieve some things, then, yeah, it's all down to me. So, uh, you know, get on and do the hard work and, and that usually leads to the, to the results following. And was there any specific event that, I guess, awoke that, that driven nature in you or did it just sort of happen as a passage of time? I suppose uh, mid-teens, uh, my mum remarried again and, and you know, uh, I suppose out of that I not just gained a stepfather but uh, uh, in a lot of ways a strong role model. So that certainly helped, you know, from the age of 15 or so um, and helped put me on the right track and provide lots of motivation, I suppose. Mm. And can I ask, is um, she still alive today, your mum? He is. They uh, they're both living up on Magnetic Island. Uh, oh, wonderful! Hills, so, great spot. And get well, to I, myself. I hope she gets to tune in and listen to this conversation sometime. Oh, and um, yes. oh, I think I think we're all jealous that she's on Magnetic Island there. Yeah, um, not a bad spot to be. That's for sure. So you did go on to university, and you were captivated by what you uh, call the dark arts or the dark matter of society. So, what is that? <laughs> well, uh, so studying initially accounting, but I was—I realised I wasn't very good. I uh, wasn't destined to be a great accountant, but uh, ended up doing economics. But um, 
the dark bit, as you call it, there was just this concept of um, externalities uh, that I came across there. So just uh, pretty fundamental things like, you know, uh, living in a fair and just society, having clean water and clean air and those sorts of things. And the uh, the combined weight of, you know, things like accounting and economics just couldn't really wrap their heads around those ideas. So they sort of uh, lay off the chart as un- uncharted territory and they, they captivated me then. It was only, you know, I found myself thinking about those some 15 odd years ago um, when I had another career change. So yeah, those thoughts have always stuck me, with me because they're the, they're the bigger things uh, well above, you know, making profit, making margin, you know, all those sorts of commercial imperatives and drivers. So externalities, um, I, I think in the current context, for example, would be when a, a company is um, emitting CO2 emissions in, in the way it operates and it's say not paying for that, it's maybe getting a free or, or easy, um, I guess, uh, benefit from doing that. Um, that's the, the concept of externality and that can be applied to pretty much aspect any aspect of a company's operation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that that is a very good and current example. And you know, well, we've we've all witnessed the debate over the last you know dozen or so years, and and carbon prices are, are, not, are still something that we don't have effectively nailed down yet. Uh, they're at the core and the heart of some of the biggest issues that we're facing. Yet, that that, that whole uh, economic uh, machinery can't really sort of process and handle. Or maybe it's the political side that can't do that. Mm. Um, I'm just going to give you a quote now, and apologies, it goes on for a bit, but I think it's worth it. So this was uh, uh, from Robert F. Kennedy, not John F. Kennedy, but Robert F. Kennedy. He said, uh, yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. So uh, it's a very... Now, this is back from, I think, 1960-something. So that was, uh, I guess, we have been on a bit of a GDP or GNP treadmill, so focusing on growth as our measure of success. But you would, uh, I think, like Robert F. Kennedy and, and myself, disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, so true. Um, it, it's a long list he had in there too. But even, you know, the, uh, I love walking out, uh, outside sometimes in the morning and just hearing a bird chirp, you know, and uh, if that's an interesting bird, even better. So, you know, you can take it into all sorts of things, which I suppose you, you summed it up beautifully. Yeah, well, he did as well, but uh, bring joy to life. So... Yeah, they're the things that really matter. So how do you, I guess, bring that type of conversation into a, a, a business or an, any organisation or even a government um, environment? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's it's hard to do that on a daily basis. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't proclaim to, to uh, even uh, attempt to do it on a daily basis, but I suppose there's... There's been times along the way during my career where it's uh, I've found that I've gone back to some sort of basic concepts like that. Um, I spent my first 25-odd years working in corporate roles, in very commercial roles, 
And whilst I was driven and uh, did well at uh, a number of those different roles, working for all sorts of multinational organisations, I just found the further along I went, the the more I suppose I was questioning and and not deriving perhaps uh, the pleasure out of success that uh, I probably should have. So starting to question, you know, uh, is there something else or is there other ways to go about doing things? So, um, yeah, so in that way, yes. Um, and then subsequently uh, in uh, in the redirection that I took about 15 years ago as well. Okay, well, we'll certainly come to that. I've noted that you worked at places like Bonlac, which is a dairy co-op. Yeah. Um, National foods, craft foods. So there was, I know there's a few other things, but what attracted you to those um, companies or that industry um, early on in your career? Yeah, I've, uh, it's, I always have loved and continue to love food. So there was something sort of basic in that attraction. But um, yeah, there was certainly something good there about playing a role in uh, nutrition, um, you know, something about uh, you know, that, that whole basis of a family you know, gathering around tables to eat, which is still something that we try to do on a, on a regular basis every night in our family. But, you know, it's just, I think it gets back to those very fundamental joys as well. So certainly a lot of pride from working in the food industry and, uh, you know, working with a, a lot of great people during that time as well. Mm. And what, what types of roles were you doing there? I was doing... Um, a range of commercial roles. I was an, uh, a marketer at one stage and transitioned over into trade marketing and, and sales account management and then even into um, you know, strategic sort of roles as well. So I had a great run. I'd say in the 12 years I had at Craft, I think I had 10 different jobs. So uh, I never lacked for that diversity and it was never a dull moment. Um, mm. Well, you certainly traversed a big arc there because you've gone from the sales account roles, which is pretty full on to what you're doing now, which is very much about reintegrating or you have been doing, reintegrating people back into society. Do you do you ever reflect on that and say, look where I was and where am I now? Yeah, I, I certainly uh, found cause to be uh, before I was applying for the role of corrections because um, the uh, I, I found what, and that was 10 odd years ago, as you mentioned before, but uh, so reflecting back over, you know, at, uh, what's that, 35-odd years of, of working and there was the, the experience that I got in the commercial world, uh, which was absolutely invaluable, um, and then I suppose transitioning over into the social sector as well, it all sort of came together uh, in putting my hand up for that role in prison industries, mm. which was essentially like a, a social enterprise within government. So. Yeah, it was the right opportunity at the right time. Yeah. So just before that, you were in, I think it was Abbotsford Biscuits, which I believe was a social enterprise run by Jesuit Social Services. That's um, correct. Am I correct? So tell yeah. us a bit about Abbotsford Biscuits. Yeah, well, that was a great um, um, little social enterprise that uh, was back uh, in about 08, 09. I think I ran that for about 12 or 18 months. But basically, it was a um, a little uh, operation in the, in in Abbotsford in Victoria, which uh, baked biscuits as a reason to try and help people uh, gain skills and gain employment. So people who'd been in jail, basically, and trying to reskill them or school them, and try to set them up with employment after that. So uh, at its heart, it was a great intent. 
So baking biscuits and selling them to try and make that uh, into a sustaining operation. Um, and at that time, there was a lot of stimulus money going around. So it, it did get um, some money from the federal government at that time. But unfortunately, it was probably about a, a third or a fifth of the money that was required to undertake that operation. So it, it didn't uh, persist. Um, but, you know, uh, milestones along the way I'll forever remember uh, moments like, and having one of the participants in the bakery alongside me where we got to attend a function there and, and meet Julia Gillard while she was uh, Prime Minister, for instance. And, and Julia, Julia Gillard went to great link. She, she knew of Abbotsford Bakery and, and was very fond about it and was glad to, to see us and chat to us about it. So the real question is, did she have a crack at baking any biscuits while she was there? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm sure she's a good cook too. So yeah, yeah. So what? Why did you transition into this this role? Um, because it would have been quite different from what you had done up until that point. Even though it's still involved with food, I imagine it's it's really focused on the people and the outcomes for the people, and the biscuits are a sort of a mechanism. So how, how did you? go in i mean why did you go into that role yeah well about 15 years ago i was fortunate enough to uh, receive a, a payout from craft after being there a dozen odd years so that brought me time to uh, reflect and and i suppose the simple proposition i came up with was how can i use my commercial skills but in another sector so uh, i had a i had quite a few different roles back around that time but basically what I found that I had to go and try and get hold of any opportunity because uh, probably the same as many people who transition from one sector or one um, area into another, it's not that easy. So uh, I just found I was open to any opportunities that came along. And I, I know when the job was offered to me to run Abbotsford Biscuits, there was another job in a in a big corporate sort of back doing what I was doing and we just had our youngest child at that point. So I actually remember ringing them and saying, can you hurry up and offer me this job? Because they had indicated they were going to. Because I was afraid that if I got the offer from the commercial entity at vastly greater dollars, I might be tempted uh, in those circumstances to, to, to take the other one instead. So I, it, I suppose it was a good test of yeah, really trying to pursue what, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, I suppose come up with the actions, not just the words, and pursue something totally different that, that could deliver a, a social impact. It sounds like it was sort of your sliding doors moment then where things could have, in your life, gone one way or the other, potentially. Yeah, very truthful, yes. Mm. Um, and no regrets from there onwards. So, yeah. Yeah. So what are some, you mentioned this was, this had government funding, um, was a part of a, a program or programs. And this is one of the key challenges, I guess, with social change is that it's great to have government grant funding, but there's a day when that runs out and if you can't be self-sustaining, then I guess the benefits or the program might cease then. Is To talk me through that challenge as someone who's helping manage that or is managing that operation, how do you, you know, how does that grate on you when you know the funding might not be there forever? Yeah, well, it's uh, it was certainly a, a great challenge in that instance in the, um, in the, in the bakery because... Uh, the, the the process of trying to make uh, and and obviously in the manufacturer is where the training's going on so that's absolutely pivotal so you've got to make biscuits the old-fashioned hand way uh, so then to be able to derive you know ten dollars a pack or fifteen dollars a pack or twenty dollars a pack at sufficient volumes to 
to pay all the bills and keep the doors open was just a massive challenge. And, and given where we come from, where it was a very small scale operation. So it really opened my eyes to those realities. So yeah, uh, uh, well-intentioned uh, as you'd expect from a, a group like the Jesuits, but um, but just the reality there of trying to you know get beyond a one-off grant um, uh, funding. And it was a pretty generous amount of money. But to actually turn it self-sustaining, well, like I mentioned earlier, it's probably a third or a fifth of the of the actual amount required to do that. So, uh, hence the admiration for all the people in that social enterprise sector. Um, it is not an easy task, and and to be able to make it truly uh, sustainable uh, into the long term is a is a real challenge that never goes away. Yeah, and what was the idea there? Was it to you said give training to people were they fresh out of prison or had they sort of been out for a while and struggled to get employment what what was the um that pathway what did it look like yeah it was a mix um it certainly was targeted at ex-offenders so whether they uh yeah were just recently out or had, had been out for some time so working with the local employment agencies in in melbourne there and uh you know specific agencies who might have had that caseload for for uh, people who've exited prison. So just trying to find uh, a group of people to come and work that were interested in acquiring that training, that bunch of skills, and then perhaps uh, pursuing something in food service, kitchens, you know, the whole uh, hospitality sector. So it was a challenge. It was also designed to be a transition program. So it was only a, a three month uh, was a sort of a, a stint or gig. So there was always constant turnover trying to find new people as well was was another one of the challenges and then train them up and then have them, uh, you know, effectively contribute and, and obviously be trained uh, to get those skills. And uh, excuse me, are there any stories or specific incidents you can remember from, from then? Yeah, there is. Um, uh, I probably won't go into them in too much detail, but... Um, yeah, look, it was uh, it was separated from other aspects of the business, so it was on its own, um, and it was it was a tenant in a building that didn't have many other tenants, so it was quite isolated. So yeah, there were certainly um, moments there that myself and the other two two or three key members of staff who who were great people, we yeah we we felt quite isolated at certain times. So you know there was challenging. Uh, behaviours or instances at times and and yeah we just had to muddle through and deal with those uh, on our own because uh, um, yeah there wasn't great uh, structures or setups there available you know in the next door office or anything like that so but yeah I'll probably won't delve too much into no, no. well I was thinking there must have been success stories there as well yeah, there was, there was, um, and certainly uh, one of the people, well, uh, the the fellow that I uh, uh, took to that event, with, uh, who met Julia Gillard as well, uh, ended up getting a, a role at a Baker's Delight there, and um, you know, um, I think that gave him an opportunity to get um, up on his feet in a way as well. So, yeah, there certainly was success stories um, mm. like that. And just before we move into the prison industries side of things. How would you frame that if you can take someone who's in that, say, a prison or offending environment and be able to, through some a program like this, they turn around and become an employed member of society? I guess from a government or a general societal perspective, that's a big swing. Um, you know, how, how big is that? How big do you see that being? 
Oh, that's um, and and that's sort of jumping forward to towards the end of the the ten years I I worked for Corrections there. That is a massive reward and um, uh, also a massive achievement. But uh, uh, so people who've been in jail, um, you know, let's say they've had a two year sentence for doing whatever it might be. Uh, in simple terms, particularly in terms of getting a job and entering or re-entering that labour market, well, the the punishment or the sentence goes on. Um, you know, the 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 prevalence of things like police checks in that uh, employment process has just you know risen and risen in recent times. So that and other barriers, there's just a whole series of barriers to those people who've been in jail. So, and quite a lot of the people who come out of jail. I don't know the proportion, but I'm happy to say the majority would hide that fact from a prospective or current employer um, for that fear of oh, if they find out they're either not going to give me the job or if they find out while I've had the job, I might lose the job. Um, and that's a real fear that hangs over over their heads, I suppose. Um, it's a stigma and it's a, a massive source of disadvantage is the only way to put it. Mm. And so do people end up having like blank spots on their resume or do they make up something to put in there? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, when we first, uh, so in the last 12 or 18 months of, of my time of corrections and we we, we uh, built the program where we were, had employers ready to employ people when they exited prisons. And so we were sending resumes through um, for these people who were due to get out in a short space of time. And none of the resumes called out what they had done in the past two years or three years or whatever it might be. There was there was a blank spot. Um, so they either uh, infer that they were still with their previous employer or they might have had something, you know, like travelling or, uh, or, or not working, whatever. But they certainly didn't call out the activities that they'd undertaken in prison uh, that mm. we were uh, out to train for them. More uh, at towards the end of my time earlier this year and late last year, I started to see resumes come through where people were calling out what they'd done in prison, which is the whole premise of of that program was to not hide that fact. It's very make the the covert overt and the fact that this person has been in prison, but that's where they acquire these skills and and achieve these milestones, if you like, that make them a good prospective employee. So. It was great to see those resumes start to shift in that time, and I'm mm. sure that momentum's kept going as well. Wow, that's yeah, that's incredible. And um, your, I think uh, I read this somewhere. You transformed a nine million per annum public service entity into a forty million dollar per annum social enterprise. So, what does that mean? <laughs> Tell <laughs> us. So yeah, the prison industry is obviously part of the Victorian public service and um, part of Corrections Victoria, but what set it apart has been quite unique and, and enabled that social enterprise approach was it had a trust. So uh, money was earned, if you like, from producing uh, goods and services. We didn't have to hand that back to the Treasury in June 30, so we could keep it in the trust. So there was an incentive to run it, not exactly like a full-blown commercial business, because we had to juggle those non-commercial goals uh, like rehabilitation and um, helping train people. But um, so that that provided the perfect groundwork for that uh, um, to, uh, I suppose, embed the, the, the fact first and then drive the fact that we operate like a social enterprise. 
And like any social enterprise, we spoke before about that need to be sustainable, even though it's in government and its existence wasn't threatened. It was more the flip side of how successful could we be, how much better could we be by being able to purchase new capabilities because we had the money sitting in that trust account. And that's what we set about doing when we... Uh, we grew the business um, in line with those numbers you spoke about, a lot more money sitting in that trust. So we were able to invest in uh, technology like barcode-driven warehouse systems to to introduce uh, computer-controlled machinery, um, you know, uh, be it in timber or metalwork, and so on and so on. So upping the quality of uh, training that we're able to give to the prisoners, but by being able to showcase that technology to prospective employers, basically resetting their perceptions about uh, what someone in prison is going to be able to learn um, as they're being trained while they work in prison. And quite a shift there from having your hand out or going cap in hand every year to try and get more funding to be in control of that piece. And as you said, focus on the, the positive social impact rather than staying alive. Yeah, absolutely. Um uh, there was times where, you know, bigger expenditure or perhaps brand new prisons where there was uh, lots of capital involved. You know, we, we certainly um, uh, rode on the taxpayer as a simple way to put it on those occasions. But for a lot of other um, smaller scale things, which was still in the millions of dollars, we were able to be far more self-sufficient. So, um, yeah, it just allowed us to be a lot more nimble. And, and to embed that whole commercial, more commercial outlook, even though we're in government, which I think the, you know, the hundreds of people who worked in the prison in industries, I know the vast majority of those people responded, the staff, and just, um, yeah, it just made the whole place uh, a whole lot uh, uh, better to work at, I suppose, mm. and fulfilled why those people went to work there. Yeah, wonderful. Um, before we delve more into that, story behind the prison industry's model and partnerships and things with that you sent me i think a video at some stage and i saw i saw that i think you were on stage maybe with luke anderson do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about luke's story yeah luke anderson is um oh well uh, an inspiring person um who who and he won't mind me saying this because he's out there in the public domain telling people his story but basically as someone who was in prison um, and basically uh, the realisation whilst he was in prison that if he was to sort his own life out, well, it was down to him. So the self-motivation, the drive. And subsequently, I continue to work with Luke to try and help him get an, a series of ideas that he's uh, he's got, which are hopefully shortly coming to market um, uh, a range of different ideas, everything from making documentaries about uh, his experience and the experience of others as they've uh, exited prison and tried to re reintegrate in society and all those challenges that they face. Um, and then even into things like, you know, uh, clothing uh, for where the families um, can buy and uh, send clothing into people in prison, which uh, makes it far easier for them and far more affordable. Um, he's got a whole series of ideas, but um, yeah, just an inspiring um, uh, young fella, and it's just uh, great to be able to work with people of that caliber. Mm. And tell us a bit about the the stigma piece there, because a lot of people will default to thinking, oh, they're out of prison, they must be dangerous, or maybe they're going to steal something. Who knows? I'm sure there's a whole lot of narratives that go on there. Tell us a little bit about the common narratives that 
that have to be broken down. Yeah, that's um, if I go back, let's say four or five years when I started. Um, so the concept that we uh, uh, built around trying to create commitment to employ people as they exit the jail was wrapped up in two key procurements a few years ago um, under the Victorian government's social procurement framework, uh, if you like. So we developed a new way of uh, trying to approach that. So back four years ago, I started talking to these prospective employers, big, small, medium organisations, about the prospect of employing people who'd been trained to do, whether it's warehouse, um, pick and pack work, uh, food processing or, um, uh, you know, a range of different uh, activities that are undertaken in prison. And I always um, sort of simply summarised it by saying is the reaction when I'm talking to these organisations was something like, you want us to employ who? Um, but, you know, a, a gradual process, there was there was multiple presentations, um, sharing and um, certainly building their understanding of concepts like the shared value concept, which is underpinned by, um, uh, yes, a, a, an idea that drives a social outcome, like employing people who've been in prison, but it's got, it must have a commercial um, outcome from it and the commercial outcomes were there for these employers if they're engaged. So built their understanding of the concept, but then um, some of them, not all of them, uh, it's sort of... Uh, they warmed to it, let's put it that way. And in the end, there were some great companies who absolutely uh, were all over PFD Foods, uh, the biggest food wholesaler in the country is one of those I'd call out. There was uh, another organisation called uh, Andrews Corporate Clothing, which is a smaller organisation, but they went to ISS facility services and engaged them as a third party. And that's where commitments for hundreds of jobs came from. So... Um, yeah, great examples there uh, with companies like that. And that's why I'm happy to call them out because not mm. only did they understand the concept and engage and certainly uh, learn and grow with it, but then uh, you know when they came to visit prisons to see the proof, that just uh, took them higher and further and faster. It, it, it increased their enthusiasm and their engagement mm. even further. So let's talk about, say, PFT Foods, first of all. What would their commercial driver have been in entering into this is this arrangement? Yeah, first one was uh, oh, the first couple basically were quite HR based, I suppose. So first, um, and in the state of the labour market with all sorts of uh, skilled shortages um, in labour at the moment, the first was well, here's a ready-made stream of um, trained people. So you don't you can reduce costs of hiring people. You know, we'll be we'll be hopefully sending you many many people. Um, who uh, you know fit the bill, um, and hopefully uh, then you can sift through. There was no compulsion for them to employ them, put them in, put them up against your outside applicants, and you pick who you deem as the right person to employ. So reducing that cost. Second thing, uh, HR bust was giving that person a second chance to turn their life around and you know re-engage with their head held tight in an overt way. Well, there was the speculation. I think that's been proven as well that. Um, the opportunity for retention. So that's a cost to the business, churning through people and having to re rehire and retrain. So that, that potential for holding onto those people is they reward the employer who gave them a go. The third aspect was about, well, in a, as, the, as the pressures on corporates uh, grow and grow and grow, and uh, thank God they do continue to grow when we read the sorts of uh, stuff that's in the media all the time uh, at the moment, 
But um, this either can contribute, uh, drive further, or be the start, whatever the case is, uh, for a social strategy, and uh, particularly the you know a very socially focused thing as opposed to you know an environmental or governance um, initiative, which is where a lot of the focus in that ESG acronym is. Well, that um, quite often this S aspect, the social aspect. So that was the other commercial part of it, I suppose. Mm. And given this, this is a program or a, an arrangement that's um, it's not just one or two people. There's several coming in. So I, I imagine people within the company must be used to that setup now. Yeah. Well, look, uh, it's still in its early days, so it's still um, you know twelve months into it, and I'm having left it a couple of months ago, and I'm still hearing it's um, it's rolling on and growing. But um, the, the whole pro- the, there was also a prepar- changing mindsets on the employer's side. So we had those very uh, some great people working in the HR areas of those organisations who were starting to get ready on how they might treat these people differently in terms of introducing them to new workmates and uh, socialising uh, the, the the background of this person and how they come to to, to that employment. I always used to talk to those potential employers also about that that notion of the first morning tea, and as you do in a in a new job, you sit around the morning tea table and you talk about yourself, and they talk about them in uh, themselves in return. And like I said earlier, for the vast majority of those uh, people who've been in jail, it's something they keep hidden. So a, a key part of that program design was to hopefully have them actually be able to talk about that openly and upfront and even potentially about what they did and what landed them in trouble. But um, the, the role the job can play in helping them uh, re-enter society. Mm. It must be quite liberating being able to tell the story in front of a group, given you, you probably historically have had to hide that fact. Yeah, yeah, I've had so many of the people I spoke to, whether they were still in prison, uh, lots of people returned to prison, so the people who are working in industries with those people and they, they uh, you know, if you've seen them 15 times before, you build up a relationship and so many of those people would talk about the fact of the stress that lies in that area. And and obviously that's, you know, there's, there's stress in that whole area of uh, even contemplating trying to get a job, let alone keeping things like that um, secret, if you like. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, a great source of stress and uh, grief in there. And you mentioned Andrew's corporate clothing. Was a similar set of drivers um, to PFD in terms of what they were looking for? Yeah, well, that um, I mentioned before how that was uh, slightly different because they were a much smaller organisation. So their commitments were, yeah, we could give jobs to two or three people in our warehouse, but you know, we're not a big organisation. Um but uh, unbidden, I didn't ask them to. They just put everything together and said, we should take this to our biggest customer and our biggest supplier. And and basically, they sold the idea into those uh, bigger employers and, and formed a bigger partnership. Um, and I think that's the key word. So, yeah, they believed in the program. They obviously saw the commercial benefits in a um, for an organisation that regularly goes into government tenders. They saw that it could not put them... Uh, not just put them in better stead in the social procurement framework now, but obviously off into the future. So I think that was uh, capital in saying that's why they went and uh, sought um, bigger companies to come and join them and and help increase the scale and uh, that they could offer in their submission. An issue I've seen come up a few times is that 
the the core job piece might be fine. You might be able to bed that down, but then there's a whole lot of other factors around it, which could be around housing or transport, getting to work. Um, when you're reintegrating back in or coming from a disadvantaged background, sometimes the things around you, um, which could be just friends and falling in amongst bad acquaintances again, for example, do you, did you find the program had to um, focus on those aspects as well, or is that sort of still being tested out in in the in the process? Yeah, well, there's there's people with far greater experience and knowledge than mine in the direction space who basically brought it down to four factors: um, housing, um, a job, um, then the social network, uh, so family proximity, and then the the good and bad elements of a social network as well. Is it positive or negative? And then was, uh, you know, perhaps the fourth is substance uh, uh, abuse or whatever it might be. So, yeah, that um, being able to build, well, I suppose it gets back to if in our lives, one of the key aspects that allow us, us uh, just as we did at the start of this discussion, to hold our heads up high is through how we define ourselves through what we do, our job, our career, our, our, our titles and all of that stuff. If that's not open and accessible to these people, how are they able to claim, claim or reclaim a spot in society? So talk about stressors. Um, you know, there, there's another massive stressor. So again, to be able to, to try and lessen some of that stress and, and try and set that up, well, yeah, the hope there is that's an anchor to allow them to concentrate on some of these other factors, whether it's rebuilding family connections. A lot of those can be uh, stressed while people are in jail. Uh, for obvious reasons, but um, also maybe the ability to give the individual confidence to turn around to a to a bad old network and say, "No, I'm not engaging with you again. You, you're part of what led me into trouble." And and, and Luke Anderson talks about um, you know the power of disengaging with the the, uh, the bad elements, I suppose, and doing that consciously is a key part of it. So you, you've got to have the pride to be able to um, do that uh, of your own volition. Well, I, I am trying to lure Luke onto the show later in the year, but he's very busy doing the things you mentioned earlier. So hopefully we'll get to hear that firsthand too. Yeah. Um, but I should point out, and I think you alluded to it, Tony, you were you were recognised the, the um, with this work um, with the Victorian Government Social Procurement Framework and with Corrections Victoria, and you were awarded um, by the peak body in this shared value area that seeks to bring business and society together in a in a win win way. You were the Impact Partner of the Year, and I think you also had another award, Practitioner of the Year. So how did that feel to get that type of recognition? Yeah, I'll still use the same word that I did on the day, which was humbling. Um, so, uh, yeah, they, they, those awards were given late last year. And uh, for someone that was relatively new to the Shared Value Community and that whole idea, yeah, it was truly humbling to, to be able to... Uh, get that recognition from from that group and and that community um and i suppose yeah it was uh yeah it was uh, it was great after quite a few years of slog um and trying to uh drive something different within government um then yeah it was uh, certainly uh well it was great to receive that recognition let's just leave it yeah and certainly coming from the fact that it's it's moving away from a model which might be say a charitable one where Someone might uh, allocate some money just to help that person to one where we're trying to build it in to a, a business as usual practice, and that. So, in terms of the scale of, of the benefits, you, you're certainly plugging into that. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, and and yeah, you know, we all we read and know that the that federal level, at state level, there's there's masses of uh, the massive amounts of money spent in trying to help people uh, who are disadvantaged in the labour market. There's there's lots of other groups that fit that uh, bill in that description too. It's uh, the costs are truly staggering. But I think it's it's fascinating to glimpse, and it's only scratching the surface, but to glimpse the the potential there of sure government's got a role to play. Government, you know, sets the agenda, the direction, and and for all the good reasons should be steering us towards the right social outcomes. But it's really business, and I think the, a particularly big business where you've got the the geographic spread of jobs, the diversity of jobs, the number of jobs to be able to make big impacts. That's where that partnership um, coming together, united on that, um, that's where the really, really big um, impacts into some of these really difficult to solve problems. I think there's answers in that in that space and that's the, you know, the beauty and the potential of the shared value idea. So I'm glad to say that the concept that, uh, you know, we, we sort of established in that social procurement framework that's been embedded and has been continued into other procurements subsequently. And, uh, yeah, there is training throughout the, the Justice Department and I think even more broadly perhaps where um, trying to train those uh, professional procurement people in the public service to, to broaden their, their, their scope and to try and look for those uh, other added outcomes as well. That brings up a very interesting issue and that is to do this type of work, and I think why you get recognised for it is that you've done it. And to, I guess, push something like this forward is taking a bit of risk, in, especially when we think of it, it's part of a government operation here. And whenever we get these great types of outcomes, there's typically someone who's on the government side, like yourself, who's, who's driving a different way of acting or thinking. And I'm, I'm wondering, at the time, does it feel like you're really trying to do something different or not, and and what barriers did you maybe face along the way? Yeah, look, uh, I said before that that process took some four years, um, and uh, for the majority of that journey, I had uh, a couple of key partners in the procurement side of things. Um, so, uh, naming names: Amelia Carey and Gordon Rosario. There, we were partners through that program, and and uh, yeah, I know concussions. Uh, my favourite sport, AFL, concussions are, are a real uh, front and centre issue at the moment. But I kept liking it, concussion, because you keep banging your head against the wall. You start to get a bit sore in the head. Um, if you've got to do it, uh, you know, time after time over an extended period of time, like four years, then, uh, yeah, it can become quite draining. But um, I suppose pushing through that is uh, is is the key requirement in, in that environment. You've got to keep going. And you've done 10 years in that role and now you, you're currently evaluating what's next. So uh, do you have any inkling for what's next? No, I don't really. I'm a great believer in karma and um, even that you know, career trajectory you brought me back to earlier in the conversation. I'm a great believer that, that it will be something in, in terms of building on what I've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes. I don't know what the opportunity looks like and when it will present itself, but I'm sure it will. But certainly that's what I want to do is how can I use those that can, uh, understanding of what drives commercial business and and not talking to them 
from well in that in the recent case like a government person you've got to be able to talk their language and understand why it is they they make their decisions but then being able to integrate that in and and potentially um still having govern as a partner in there but maybe in a different way i just think there is such a magic in that recipe um that there's so much more that can be done to uh yeah really um do some interesting things so that's that's the very broad and uh, uh, not quite simple version, I suppose, of it. And I'm sure it'll fall into place at some time. Mm. And and who's inspired you on that journey? Are there any particular people? You did mention a couple of colleagues a minute ago. Is uh, there anyone else, whether it's someone close to you or someone maybe um, someone else somewhere in the world? Yeah, I spoke about the uh, role of my mother there from you know, uh, growing up, and that certainly um, is part of that too. But I've got to say, yeah, the, um, the, the so many people within corrections. Um, so, you know, corrections is one of those essential services, but um, they, they term it the, uh, the invisible uh, essential service because it's by its very nature hidden behind the walls of a prison. And, um, you know, when the, there is quite often those showcases for the police and the ambos and all those other different fantastic services, the corrections people are busy behind the wall doing their jobs, so they don't really. It's out of sight, out of mind, and the and the media does no favors in the way that it, it covers so many issues to do with uh, the the industry of of jails and corrections. So there's just so many uh, skilled, intelligent, um, uh, just people who uh, work for corrections for the right reasons. They. Uh, they're just motivated to make a difference to people. So, uh, yeah, there was just so many inspirational people. And I won't start to rattle off names because I'll get into too many. But <laughs> I, I did, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. lots of people to you know, unsung heroes, let's put it that way. Well, before I go into my three wrap-up questions, uh, I just have to ask, how's the restoration of your your CX Citroen coming along? <laughs> Oh, very slowly. So I had grand plans when I uh, did finish working uh, about three months ago to be able to uh, uh, bang out an un, un, what was then an unregistered car, get it uh, roadworthy and get it on the road by you know, within that three-month period. So to sum up my progress, I'm still waiting for the uh, last tranche of parts which are on their way from the Netherlands. Uh, the, the parts from Germany and the UK have arrived. So uh, oh, I haven't achieved much in the three months. So, but I think that's probably just part of the course in that area. Well, there's, there's a race against time here. Will you get a, your next role, the next job before you finish the Citroen or not? That could be the real timeline we're chasing. I think I will get my role before it because I'm not <laughs> optimistic that it'll happen in the next month or so, that's for sure. Right. So what do you think that role will be? Will it be like standing in the middle and brokering arrangements and party partnerships maybe as a like a consultant or attaching to a some sort of funded program or do you think you would end up working with an with an organization or institution yeah i don't know it um again back to the karma point it's it's probably uh uh a cover for my uh, strategic laziness or shortcomings but um i think uh, rather than the word consulting yeah the building partnerships i do i do think i have a knack for for seeing uh, untied threads or opportunities and then sort of bringing them together in a way that may not have been done in quite that way before. So I'm quite confident that it'll be some form of opportunity that allows me to do more of that 
and hopefully on a bigger scale and a, a more sustainable basis. So yeah. that's what I'm aiming for. Okay. Well, we need lots of those thread pullers and think different people. So uh, I uh, I hope and, and I really truly hope you end up in the job that you're looking for there. Um, but your uh, three wrap-up questions, um, and I know you've listened to other episodes, so you might be ready for them or you might not. I don't know. So the first question is just I want to get a sense for what does purpose mean for you in your life? Yeah, well, I think um, it sums it up there across the course of this discussion that purpose, uh, I've re-engineered my career towards the latter end, the last 15 years, to try and aim at that purpose. So it is really the, the culmination of my career. So that is my hope in that next role is I get uh, the opportunity to, I did some great things of correction. I'm extremely proud. I'll be proud forever. But gee, I'm aiming to do some even bigger things and they will have purpose at the, at the middle of what they're about. And it's, it sounds like to me that purpose is fundamentally about helping people who, who just need a bit of a, a leg up in, in finding that better, better life. Yeah, it's, let's call them social issues, back to those externalities, um, you know, back to that notion of, well, here are important things that make our lives a joy. Uh, and for people who don't get the opportunity to see joy in life, geez, that's pretty crook. And, you know, that isn't a fair go that, uh, you know, we're supposed to as Australians sort of uh, embody. Um, before I ask the next question, speaking of joy in life, you said your favourite game is AFL, um, which is my favourite as well. And, and my team is, is Carlton, and they haven't given me a lot of joy for, for about 30 years now. So <laughs> I could do a bit of joy on that front too. <laughs> well, mine is Hawthorne, who are enormously inconsistent. But for my sins, I got to see Carlton last week, and I've got to say, Phil, I can feel your pain. <laughs> yes, there's three hours of my life I'll never get back. So yeah. I was uh, luckily I was on a flight when they were playing last week, so I didn't get to see it, which was fantastic. That was good luck. Um, anyway, question two. So, what are you really? I mean, I've got a sense for what you're looking forward to, but is there anything more specific you're looking forward to from here? I, yeah, I, I've now had a good rest. I did need a rest after that, um, those repeated doses of concussion, I suppose. Um, so had a good rest. So I'm really, really keen to, uh, to uh, yeah, get my teeth into that next challenge, whatever that may look like. Um, so, yeah, actually, you mentioned Luke Anderson before. I caught up with him for a meeting this morning and met up with uh, another a, a great young entrepreneur in that social space as well. Um, so, yeah, there's just uh, so many good things happening out there. And if I can contribute in some way to to helping drive those or, or orient them the right way or contribute something, that's just something I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth into. So. Mm. Or whatever that looks like, I don't know. I'll just wait for that to evolve. Mm. Okay. And final one is if if someone's listening to this and they're thinking about a career, say, in a government entity or even at an employer, what would be your tip for them about finding meaning and purpose in, in their work and, and life? Yeah. Oh, that's a big one for a short wrap-up question. <laughs> it's yeah. a big one. <laughs> One key tip, one thing yeah, that's held you well. Yeah, you look in government. I think it's it's sort of embedded in many ways into what government does. Uh, you know, there's in many roles, there's a purpose and there's a reason, and hopefully a lot of that is to make the world better. But um, yeah, quite often that's bound up with the bureaucracy. So mm -hmm. don't let the bureaucracy be the boundary. Um, 
don't let it define and stay within the the you know the trend tracks if you like of that. Uh, there's no reason why you can't work out a way around that. It's uh, it doesn't have to be illegal or immoral. Uh, that's how innovation starts. So I think I'll just confine that advice to people who might be going off to work in government. Just don't settle for the bureaucratic line. You don't mm. have to. Yep, great advice. So we're going to include some links to various things in the show notes, including some of the, I guess, case studies slash award information as well. So people can find out more about that. And it's been great finding out about the work you've done, Tony. And thanks for sharing your Purpose Edge with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, and lovely to chat, Phil. Thank you. Connecting with Tony is really interesting from a purpose perspective, especially seeing how he gravitated from commercial roles into social enterprises and not-for-profit industries as his career went on. And there was three takeaways from me to compare to your takeaways, perhaps. Number one, the scale and sustainability of the change that he's helped to push through, taking this Vic Prison Industries area from 9 mil to a 40 mil plus business and making that self-sustaining really and self-funding. Uh, and in that process, he said it was hard work, it takes time, and he had to push through the concussion, as he called it, which was really about pushing through the bureaucracy. But he did it, and he had that perseverance along with a couple of, uh, or several people that he, he talked about. And in that process, was able to bring different organizations and, and different partners together in new ways. There's also a huge value in turning a life around. You could say it's priceless. Um, but when someone goes from being a cost drain on society to a productive member of society, that is just huge. And when I've seen people try to put numbers on it, it does typically come out in the millions over their lifetime. That was a long point one, but point number two, the level of resolution for ex-offenders I found really interesting as well because people are going from having to live a lie and hiding their past to starting a new job and being able to talk about it at their morning tea. And Tony's been a champion and enabler of that process. And that must be really fulfilling. And just, just imagine at a personal level how that helps people as individuals and in their own, I guess, ongoing mental health as well. Point number three, his admiration for people working in the corrections industry was enormous. And we're probably swayed, well, I am probably swayed by some of the TV and movie dramas that we see. But as Tony says, it's not really sexy work, but there's people there who really want to do something good and help. And perhaps they don't get the level of recognition that other services may attract from time to time. But overall, he's attracted to helping people and he demonstrates there are really powerful ways to go about it. So I, th I think his story was, was quite unique and different to many others that we've had on this show. You'll find links and further information in the show notes, as well as my contact details, should you wish to get in touch. I'm Phil Preston, and I'll see you next week again for another episode of The Purpose Edge. Mm -hmm.